Hey, Brian. Hey, Elliot. What's the talk of the table? This week, we're sitting down with Dr. Emily Friedman. Dr. Friedman is an associate professor of English at Auburn University, the director of 18thConnect.org, a contributing writer to such publications as Polygon and the Los Angeles Review of Books. She is one of, if not the, leading minds on the history and industry of actual play podcasting. If you're a fan of Critical Role, Dimension 20, other actual play shows, you can often find her live tweeting analysis of the shows as they air. We are honored to have her on to share some of her insights with us and to talk about this wild world we call actual play. Dr. Emily Friedman, welcome to the show. I'm so glad to be here in that virtual creepy way. Hello from Alabama. <laughs> Hello from New York City, baby. Woo, New York City. Two time zones. So that's mm-hmm. It's a weird word where we've had some people on where it's just like, We've had like multiple time zones represented. It's it's insane to me that that's still a thing, that we're able to do this. My next podcast, we have to coordinate between India and here. So, mm-hmm. yeah. I've got one coming up this week that is uh, New York, L.A., and Sydney, Australia. Oh. <laughs> but no, I've I've well. never been more aware of time zones than this, this moment when I'm coming back from Germany where I was up at 3 a.m. on a Thursday, Friday? I don't know. What are times? And I was like, oh, I guess I could live tweet Critical Role after all. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Emily Friedman, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, Brian, I know you had some big goals for this conversation. You want to introduce? Uh, that idea a little bit? I, I do kind of have some big goals. And and Emily, this is kind of on the back of a recent, as of this recording, Twitter thread you were uh, discussing with James D'Amato of, of OneShot. And the idea is, and this is a, a conversation I had with Taylor Moore over on my first Dungeon podcast, that the term actual play, it is a big old term that is being pigeonholed into covering like absolutely everything in the tabletop role-playing space, that we just don't have the terms to properly define everything that is out there. And that's causing like a a tension between what people are expecting, what people are getting. If you think you're going into a horror movie and it turns out it is a comedy, you're not going to like it because your expectations weren't met. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a problem. Um, but it's as with so many things in the tabletop space, my brothers, sisters, friends beyond the binary, it's a problem that we have to think about in terms of scale. It's a big problem in tabletop. It is not the problem actual play has for everyone else. So I teach here uh, in Auburn, Alabama at the university class on tabletop, and my students still are not necessarily familiar with actual play at all, even if they're playing a lot of role-playing games, right? And the challenge is also true in academia. This has become a really fascinating field for media studies and game studies and performance studies. But we they still we still have to define the term of what actual play is, even as a big umbrella term. And so while I adore everything Taylor does, and I think he's really smart, we're not ready yet to say, oh, actual play, and then some other terms. I think we need to modify actual play, mm. right, mm. in different kinds of taxonomic ways that, you know, we need to add on a kind of live actual play, studio actual play, edited actual play, you know, these sorts of things. We need to figure out, you know, what are the things that matter in those ways 
because we're still defining like my job still for Polygon and for places like the LA Review of Books. And, you know, when I'm writing an academic article or when I'm writing this book is the first thing I have to do is say, this is what actual play is. And even in game studies, the other weird, annoying thing, right, is that actual play it had a meaning before the way we use it now. Um, actual play was when during the height of the Forge and Google Plus and a previous generation of understanding and talking about uh, tabletop and criticism was literally recorded play sessions, not for entertainment value, but for analysis, right? Like, so to see what's happening, how a game prototype is shaking out, to think about what might be going wrong at a particular table in terms of dynamics. So I was just at a, a conference where I was, along with Alex Chalk, the actual play people, and everyone else is a game designer or an expert in the tabletop space in other kinds of ways. And many of them are like, learning to think, oh, right, now when we talk about actual play, we're talking about this new mode, this new genre, this new artistic expression of of that's related to tabletop in some kind of way. And they're getting there. They were able to do that, right? So we've got to win. <laughs> we've got to win inside the, the, the core. We still have to explain, right, to your grandma or right. to someone who's trying to find this stuff on YouTube, trying to find this stuff on Spotify or their podcatcher, you know, the thing that is going to give me more gray streaks to dye funky colors is I have a hard time finding the new actual plays when they are not identifying as actual plays in their metadata or in their mm. description. And so I'm like, great, an improvised audio drama. Love to see it. So great. Fuck you. Please put actual plays somewhere <laughs> in the, you know, in the description so that I can find it. Because right now we don't have the discoverability. And this is my plea for, you know, artistic expression is great. Clarifying what we're doing is awesome. But we also have to have what my little metadata heart and nerdy heart calls controlled vocabulary, right? Which is how we find things as a collective. And then you can go be weird, <laughs> right? So uh, the sermon, the lecture, opening lecture is over. <laughs> <laughs> but, but that's where I start from when like I I, I I talk to Taylor and I'm like, I get you. I, I completely sympathize with the idea that narrative play is a useful term. It's also not one that we're all using and we all haven't picked up. So can we do narrative actual play? Audience centered actual play? Can we can we modify so that we still have a controlling phrase that we all use? Please right. and thank you. So I guess then that if, if we have this control phrase, I guess a good place to start is by as best we can at present moment trying to define that control phrase. So where you where you sit right now with with all the knowledge that you have currently, what do you think that is like it, your your best uh, take at defining that term as it is now? Oh, boy. So what I've historically defined it in publications and with my students is that it is um, a form of storytelling that includes mechanics and the element of chance baseline. 
And I will still hold to the idea that that those elements of chance need to be legible to the audience, but that's also something that's now currently under debate. There are some really stellar, as podcasts in particular, performances that will play a game and then edit all mechanics, all trace of gameplay out. And then the question becomes, and I don't have a good answer to this, is that still actual play or is that some sort of other thing? At the moment of this recording, I, I mean, I'm inclined to say that's something different, right? That's, mm-hmm. that's using the, the, that's a, that's one way of devising an audio drama. But if the audience doesn't know, then how, then how is it still play, right? But there are other completely reasonable people. I think Janiah Kemper is one of them who have said, right? But the origin is still, it's about the making, right? And the making matters. And the making does matter. But I guess as with all things with actual play, it's always a question of who's more important in our definitions, in our construction of these things, the people at the table, the creators, or the audience, and different people have different answers to that question. I think it's um, particularly interesting with an example that you and James were talking about on Twitter, which is the Malevolent podcast from Harlan Guthrie. And it's interesting what you're talking about, about hiding the mechanics, because I remember as a fan of that show, the first season, you would hear an occasional roll of dice before um, he would describe something in character. And then after the first season... That goes away. And because of that, I sort of like had this own disconnect in my brain being a fan of actual play, listening to it, where I'm like, is he playing a game? Is this just like extra flavor? Um, yeah, I, I think it's I think it's interesting the choice of like to include it at first and then and then take it away. Um, and the and the choice to to just edit it out entirely sometimes for shows from the get go. I, I faced this question myself when we did on my first dungeon our anamnesis season. Because Anamnesis uh, by Samantha Lee is a solo tabletop role-playing game. And the mechanics of it aren't, are, are not necessarily interesting to listen to in podcast form. Because uh, it would just be me kind of like reading a prompt and then answering it. And so ultimately we just, and I apologize to you, we did title it an improvised audio drama. <laughs> so, no, that's great. <laughs> but but I, I went back and forth on that because like we kept in the prompts kind of. And we kept in like what cards we drew kind of, but it was all, we never really explained the mechanics. We never really did the mechanics. They were just kind of like ethereal audio things that happened. And it was the first time when when I produced something that was definitely on one of those border, one of those more extreme edge cases of, is this actual play anymore? Or did we just make a thing by an interesting method. Right. I mean, I think about it a lot when Critical Role acquired Midst, right? Which is mm. another improvi- improvised question mark. Um, sometimes that word shows up in the description of, of what has been created and sometimes not. But whatever it is, the origins of its creation are left in obscurity. They are not the point. In- up to and including the people who are behind it, right? Who have... Uh, since the acquisition chosen to be anonymous. So I also think about this as we think about like where Critical Role is also going with its own kind of extension, right? With Illuminated Worlds and the debut of a game using that system, Candela Obscura, which 
The first 40 minutes of that show in the first episode, there is not a dice roll to be found, right? It opens with a cinematic, you know, which literally I've now run that game. And you are instructed to read a five to six minute narrative that has nothing to do with the players, right? Mm. Um, It's from a third person kind of like Columbo perspective. The conceit is, oh, well, this is a dramatic version of the kind of briefing the players are getting before they arrive at the crime scene. But it's a choice, right? And it's, there's still elements of game, but it is definitely whatever cinematic means to the people at Darrington Press, it means fewer roles at fewer points, except for, you know, in the climax, there seem to be many, many more roles. But for a long span of it, nothing. So it's an interesting kind of harbinger of what Critical Role sees as the beating heart of what it is they do, um, which is not what I necessarily always think is the beating heart of what they do. So who's right? Don't know. I'm not a predictor. I just describe what I see. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, Im- improvised and theater games and things like that are amazing, but mm. I think they are categorically distinct from what submitting your story to the elements of chance and happenstance, that the dice are going to tell a story, right? That the cards are going to tell a story, that, you know, these sorts of things. That seems to be something different that actual play does. That, and that's what I find really fascinating because that's when genre can break. That's when we don't necessarily find ourselves bound to the same kind of story beats because we can't. We the the dice will thwart us if we try to to maneuver in particular kinds of ways. When you think about those two aspects, I, I was struck by was mechanics and chance. I'm curious where you think. Maybe if we plot a little bit of a trajectory around, let's start with mechanics, maybe like, are we heading, like when you think about Candela Obscura as an example, and maybe as like a a flagpole or a tentpole for it, are we heading towards less and less mechanics in actual play in your mind? Or is it still just a wide spectrum? I mean, again... My, my, I need to like, if I sold t-shirts, if I was a merch person, I would have (laughs) one that says, I describe, I don't predict. I am not a forecaster. I remember very vividly talking to Abria Iyengar and asking her like, what do you think is the next thing in actual play? And she's like, and this was 2021. And she said, you know, it's going to get shorter. And she was right up until started Worlds Beyond Number a thing that is intended to run for years and years, right? So, you know, there's a yes and to that as well. And so I think it's going to be very interesting to see. So it's very clear that the Candela experiment is one that's intended to potentially go longer. They built a whole ass separate set for that sucker, but they filmed functionally a three-episode pilot. So it's going to be very interesting to see whether Critical Role, who are the only people who know what metrics matter to them, actually thinks of this as a success, and also whether other people think of this as a success. Uh, Lynn Codega has argued this is a system designed for actual play. Critical Role will not say that. Um, I have asked directly. (laughs) (laughs) But there's so much in this space at this moment in time, for better and for worse, is market-driven. What will audiences watch? 
This is why Dungeons and Dragons proliferates, because it's something you can search for. It is the quote unquote world's greatest role playing game. Millions of people play it all over the world. And so I I don't know. I can tell that it is a success with a particular core base, like Tumblr's gone nuts. Whether that translates to success with any other kind of troop of players is anybody's guess. Um, and whether it brings in a new audience, which I think is the the challenge that actual play now faces, right? You can't you can't keep putting the same $5 in circulation and expect to grow. You've got to figure out a way to hook in. This is why I think Dungeons and Drag Queens is the current success story of 2023. Cause the RuPaul's Drag Race folks came over and were like, this is fun. And maybe they're going to watch the rest of, you know, they've got the dropout subscription for a month. So they might as well take a look at the rest of what they're offering. Mm-hmm. And maybe we'll have some converts to D20. Um, but that's also very explicit an introduction to Dungeons and Dragons. And I think there, you know, if I had to weigh the kind of pro-cons, which I am now spitballing and doing, Mm -hmm. I would say what sticking with mechanics gives you is you have the layer of not only pleasure and performance, but pleasure in like that sports ball kind of way. Mm-hmm. I have compared, you know, moves in an episode of Critical Role or Dimension 20 to, you know, the fadeaway shot from the three-point line, right? There's this kind of um, capacity for that kind of dopamine hit in addition to a story well told. And so I'm inclined to say, oh, that's, where we're going. But I don't know. It could just be that what we really need at this particular moment, inflection point, and 2023 is absolutely the year that everything is changing. The writers aren't guilders on strike again, which it hasn't been since right before the start of actual play. You know, all these sorts of things are are, are changing. Who's going to be having the time and energy and interest in doing this kind of stuff as a creative expression? All these sorts of things are unknown. But yeah, I mean, I think that once you're not doing mechanics, you're basically, you're, you're in another audio drama, right? What's, and then it becomes, what's your hook? And I think you touched on a lot of this is driven by what the market wants. And we talked with Eric Silver of Join the Party and of Multitude, and he has a kind of idea of, and he's talked about this a couple of different places, that there is a current like LAification of things where it is kind of all being driven towards what Dimension 20, what Critical Role, what Worlds Beyond Number are doing, where it's all essentially long-form improv with a rules-light kind of take on Dungeons & Dragons. This isn't the first time I'm hearing this kind of idea that we are moving towards something of a monolith, and I'm curious if that will continue or if that's going to, if it's going to be the same $5, but like same five creative dollars in circulation, that all of a sudden someone's going to be like, oh, actually we need to start branching out more. And if that doesn't gain some traction in some way. What's fascinating to me is, you know, when you look at the kind of, the LAification, you know, in terms of networking, 
the first thing I ever did uh, and gave up very quickly was try to create a network visualization of people who had participated in official D&D, like the, the official D&D sponsored content. Because, mm-hmm. you know, in 2018, they were bringing in, you know, for the things like the stream of many eyes and stuff like that, they were bringing in things that were not directly paid for by them, but they gave them a little spotlight, right, in live performance. And they killed that pretty quickly, as with so many things. But it, it, it's a naughty, dense nest, right? And and it sprawls in weird kinds of ways. But what's interesting to me is that the LA scene also, even with people who were involved in the creation of Critical Role at the very beginning, there are people who are, who are trying experiments. Those experiments, I mean, Kolok is up for, did a kind of four-year consideration run in the new media category for the Emmys, right? And they deserved it. It was one of the actual plays I screened in Bond to kind of show this is this is the kind of edge of the boundaries that we're seeing. And I've been doing a lot of judging of what I call the ambitious middle for New Jersey WebFest. So if we think about like the high budget studio shows as operating the dimension 20s, the critical roles, I think of like the crit awards where their nomination form said, don't nominate the big ones. And it was critical role, dimension 20, et cetera. I don't know what the fuck that et cetera is. I'm very curious about what that <laughs> et cetera is, but, but if we say that, that et cetera is, it is, you know, the, has is sustainable they are small by hollywood standard they are big in terms of the end of the ttrpg space they are outward facing they are one is connected to ubc one is deeply connected to the animation and video game scene then there's the ambitious middle then there's the folks who are also making sustainable shops but like not doing bananas numbers or not visibly bananas numbers um who are doing interesting kinds of things and who do things like submit to the different web fests and there there are some clones of the LA style and those are the ones that I'm like, "Yeah, this is fine. This is fine." Um but there are, you know, some really interesting experiments with different um, things that, for example, that only audio can do, which of course Dimension 20 and Critical Role can't do, um, and, uh, or have not yet really immersed themselves in like podcast forward audio first production. Um, and also what different systems can get you. And that's where my curiosity, like that's what I want to hear about. Like mm-hmm. I get email pitches in my inbox because people are hoping for polygon coverage or just that I'll like mention something because on Twitter that mattered for a hot minute. And anytime the pitch leads with, we're a group of friends, like congratulations, that's great for you. Um, That welcome to the baseline. The expectation is that you are a civil human being with the people at your table. It's, it's what are you doing that's different? Like, and it's hard to get people to articulate what they're doing that's innovative. And I've been trying for literally a year now. My first pitch uh, that Charlie Hall asked me to do for Polygon was like the future of tabletop. And I was like, okay, I'm going to ask people on Twitter and anywhere I can to send me like, what are they doing in innovative kinds of ways in the space? And it was shockingly like pulling teeth considering there are thousands upon thousands of actual plays um, being produced all the time. Very few people were able to say, to articulate something very specific about 
what they were doing differently, either in terms of production or in terms of system or in terms of that's less the case now. But that's what's striking to me is that people don't think in those kinds of ways. There's still, I say the greatest story that Critical Role ever told is the story about its own making. We're friends. This was our home game. Um, we put it on Geek and Sundry and who could say, and they're telling the truth, right? The, all of those things are true. All of those things are insufficient to describe how Critical Role took off. It was Twitch at a particular moment in time. It was fifth edition at a particular moment in time, all those sorts. And it's people with who maxed out charisma and got some magic items uh, mm -hmm. on top of it and people who knew how to deal with fan bases. It's not for nothing. They had been in the anime scene doing, you know, dubs and things like that um, and being in fan conventions and all of that sort of deal. But what's striking to me is I have interviewed people who have come up in the wake of Critical Role is the sense that that is still a template that is available. Mm -hmm. And I was talking to Matt over DM the other day and saying, I have the feeling that you have the same relationship to this space that I do to graduate students who are like, so how can I have a job just like yours? It's like, fuck if I know I was one of the survivors from the 2008 economy crash. Half my, the jobs I applied for totally evaporated um, there, but for the, whatever path to success is available, I will help you down it. But you can't do what I did because step one, be an 18th centuryist is not really like the best, <laughs> best decision. And he was like, yeah, no, I feel that really hard. <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, this is the thing is like, there's this sense because it was not that long ago that now we are in this kind of professionalized space where there's a meaningful pathway to success as opposed to, oh no, it's the wild west. It's changing all the time. Platforms are changing all the time. And this was one of 5 million different things that people in the, in the LA scene, in the New York scene, whatever scene you're talking about, were doing. And this one was the one that managed to like blow up, right? They were creative people living creative lives um, and have, and still have day jobs, all of them, right? Mostly many of that, many day jobs. And this is the reason why I'm like, oh, we have to write the history now is because it is history. It is the story of a very particular moment in time. And now whatever's coming next is going to look very, very different if it's going to succeed. It cannot follow the template. So yeah, so I mean, this to circle back to the question of, you know, what's, you know, is the LA scene going to continue to dominate? I mean, New York's making a big play. Um, especially, you know, go New York. <laughs> yeah. New York's making a big play, not just, you know, the work that you're doing and the work that Taylor is doing, but also, you know, Ned Donovan, is, you know, who leads New Jersey Web Fest, but also is kind of central to the new, new season of Encounter Party that is one of the actual plays that's going to be on the D&D, &D, um, network, mm. which is a really interesting experiment. That thing's LA based, but right. Like, who are they? And, and it's deeply immersed in that, but it's also coming from, you know, kind of East Coast sensibilities. And then, of course, there's the Atlanta scene, which are all theater and film professionals who are doing interesting studio work. There, that's uh, Elder Eye Entertainment and stuff like that. That's Atlanta by Night. That's mm -hmm. um, some of the new stuff. And they're getting they're getting having good relationships with Chaosium and and with other kind of spaces. So, I mean, again, I think we have to retool what success is. Mm. No one's going to have critical role success. 
that's just critical roles shouldn't have had critical role success in terms of like just <laughs> it's not just lightning striking because lightning strikes all over the place all the time it's 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 really kind of you know i it's a unicorn right this right. is what troy baker has said about it these things don't happen in hollywood the you know period end of sentence so so and i think if we manage expectations back down to oh, this can be a meaningful part of my creative life and I can do it sustainably and that that's a win. If that's the goal, then I think we see more success, more different kinds of success and hopefully new audiences. Fingies crossed. I hope that when my book comes out in a couple of years, it's not talking about something that was, but mm, something that right. has bloomed and transformed into something still different. I want to dig in on the audience perspective of of everything you were talking about there. I'm curious because you you talked a lot about creators are putting this idea on themselves that like the critical role path, the dimension 20 path, maybe is still something they can achieve. And I'm curious from the audience point of view, are audiences still wanting more critical role like shows, more dimension 20 like shows? Or are you finding when you especially I'm curious when you speak to people who are a hundred percent outside of listenership have never listened to an actual play. Are they kind of ready for anything or are they, I've listened to critical role. I want more critical role clones. It's very interesting, especially with undergraduates. Cause I often talk about this as a media that's still, I mean, survey data shows that the, there's a rising audience of Gen Z swelling and it's equally NB, uh, femme and mask identified, which I find like equal in thirds, which I find mm -hmm. fascinating. And I can't survey below the age of 18. So, uh, there it's a little bit of skewed in that way, but we know that it's my students age that are kind of the, 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 not the primary audience. I have respondents to my survey that go up to over 70 years old, but that's, you know, a large number. And, so I ask my students to help me get as an impression of as many actual plays as possible. So I have this huge master list and they listen to the first 30 minutes to gather some information like, you know, what's the, what's the layout of the screen? If there's a screen, what kind of additional audio is there? How long does the game facilitator speak before the players speak? Are there things like player introductions, all these kinds of little weird features? And it's always fascinating to me which things hook my students um, because they are not, I mean, by and large, there are students who come in having loved Critical Role, um, but they're, they're just as likely to latch on to some random game, you know, I've never heard of. And then when I look at it, it's not, you know, it's not like secretly tracking on, you know, on Tumblr or something. Like, I have not missed this. Mm -hmm. This is just, you know, a small fish doing its thing. And it found another, it found another audience member. And what we know from the survey data is that most people who are watching actual play or listening to actual play keep up with a handful, like fewer than I have fingers on one hand each week and each month a little bit more. So there's not room for another critical role. If they're, if they're doing critical role, and this is something that I'm hypothesizing, if they're doing critical role, they're, they don't have room for much more. 
if they're doing Dimension 20, then they, they have room for other stuff, which is a good thing because Dimension 20, of course, has an entire extended universe, not just World Beyond number, but also NADPOD and other sorts of things. But yeah, I mean, I, I think that, yeah, there, there are only so many hours in the day. And there are some people who are hardcore power listeners, especially people whose jobs require not a whole lot of a certain kind of mental processing power, or if they're driving a lot or those sorts of things, um, then they are looking for new content all the time in a particular niche. But yeah, I think that the the if you're following the template in the hopes of being another critical role or another dimension 20, the 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 spots have been occupied. <laughs> People are not going to the equivalent of the Amazon, you know, show me more uh, for those. They are devoted to those fan fan bases. But if they're, you know, if they're a big fan of Call of Cthulhu, then they probably they ha- probably have more hours in the day to listen than there is content good produced content to listen to. That's a great way to put it. I love the they're not hitting the show more if they're if they're I want to just like punctuate that because I think that's really good. <laughs> it's interesting that you say if people are a big fan of Call of Cthulhu, they'll go looking for your good Call of Cthulhu show. And I am curious from, from again from the audience perspective, how much game is ma- game choice is mattering now whereas like everything you know 5 10 years ago was D&D 5th edition, are you seeing people gravitate because of the game system being played more in the current moment? I mean, I think it depends because there's lots of different reasons that people listen to or watch an actual play. We so often talk about the parasocial, right? That you're watching somebody and taking pleasure from that particular performance. But because of the kind of what we talk about, the LAification, you have the possibility of watching some of those people on lots of different things, right? We joke about the summer of Abria. You could have watched her on Critical Role. You could have watched her on Dimension 20. You could watch her on Dimension 20. Do you want to watch her skewering Harry Potter or, you know, creating a newer, better Regency than Bridgerton did, right? Like you have a lot of choices if, you know, you're going for the personality that is Abria Iyengar. But that's not the only reason that people consume these things. Some, I mean, there is still a kind of pedagogic element to a lot of uh, use of actual play. At least it seems to me. This is why One Shot and Party of One have, you know, been going strong for as long as they have, because every episode is a new encounter with a new game system. They're the closest that we get to something like Will Wheaton's Tabletop, right? Or uh, Beckett Scott's Game the Game, which do for board games what we don't really fully do for a- for uh, tabletop games, which is here's how you play it and here's what a game session looks like. We don't do that in, in, with engaging human beings and, you know, edited artfully and, and, and entertainingly. Party of One and, and One Shot are, the, are your options for that or the major options for that. There are a couple of others, too, that are, that are also in the mix on this. We are variety. And, of course, Friends at the Table is like the landmark for that, for mm. a longer form, right? You know, and they play Blades and then the Adventure Zone plays Blades because Maria, of the Mariella campaign from Friends at the Table, right? Like these sorts of things can kind of propagate their way up. I mean, what's fascinating to me are those particular kinds of moments where something that's happening in the kind of middle 
or upper middle range gets kind of picked up by the bigs because some people are paying attention at that level. Mm. Um, but yeah, no, I think it's less. So, so for some people they're picking system and for some people they're interested in genre or a kind of experience. Right. And I don't love thinking about systems as genre emulators, but many of them are, um, you know, and so Cthulhu and vampire have, you know, known quantities in terms of what are you going to experience in those kinds of games? What is the level of risk and spoopy oopiness and, and all that sort of thing? Um, how much you know, interpersonal political backstabbing is going to happen in a, in a vampire game? All of those sorts of things, I think, do lead to people gravitating to known systems for particular kinds of vibes. The 80s are over, and you're not kids anymore. Now is a much darker time. Something happened to you, and you got touched by the weird, and it made you wild, and it made you powerful. This is the world of The Lost Bay, a suburban gothic RPG. A fever dream set in 1990X and inspired in equal parts by dark fantasy, horror classics, and the 90s indie culture. After years of development, and thanks to the feedback and support of a community of early enthusiasts, The Lost Bay is coming to Kickstarter, featuring a full rulebook and complete setting designed by Eco, kick-ass art by Evangeline Gallagher, killer maps by Strega Wolf Vandenberg, and six additional modules by some of the coolest designers in the indie scene. So go to thelostbayrpg.com to be notified on launch. That's thelostbayrpg.com. You've mentioned a couple times the the idea of like this ambitious middle. And I'm just curious if you have any anything that, that has come across your desk that you think is like particularly noteworthy that people should be checking out within this ambitious middle. This is why I keep a list on. So I have a, a, a list on Spotify that is people recommend actual plays to me, um, which is really lovely because it means I can answer these kinds of questions really quickly. I like what um, I, mean, I like what the rest of the One Shot Network is doing, especially with stuff like Skyjacks. Theater of the Mind players are the other folks I can think of who are doing a lot of that kind of variety experience of uh, different systems. I listened to Planet Arcana because someone recommended it to me and was just, it was the first of these like random Twitter recommendations where I was like, oh no, I'm listening to this. Like I, cause usually I'll be like, I'm driving to Atlanta for 90 minutes, recommend actual plays to me. I will listen to at least 20 to 30 minutes and I will do that and get through quite a few on my way to Atlanta and be like, I have heard this. I have experienced Planet Arcana. I like stayed on and went on to the next episode. Right. So that was a big one for me. We love Planet Arcana here. I also really like the Atomless right now. I will also say that I do not personally like, but I'm really glad exists because I think it it has a place in the space is 
the the new Real Housewives of D&D or I forget. I think that's what it's called. But it's literally the like that is the framing, right, is uh, is is a, the Real Housewives lens. So it's doing, I think, similar kinds of things in terms of a potential crossover nerd audience to what Dungeons and Drag Queens is doing over on Dimension 20. And there's there's other ones that uh, I, I, I think uh, I mean, I always have to when I'm listening to things, especially as a judge, distinguish between what I'm really getting into and what I want to listen to more versus what I think is well done. And I've been trying to think a lot about like, what is what does it mean to call something well edited? What does it mean to call something well sound designed? It's not just adding on, you know, sound. Congratulations, you learned how to use audacity or whatever, then that's no small feat. That's, that's an right. enormous amount of labor, but what does it mean to do it well um, for an audience? And then, and yeah, I mean, I'm, I am not your audience for a bunch of dudes at the table, like her, 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 like making dum-dum jokes. Right. So like, that's a whole genre of actual play that are like I encounter and can say, oh, this is better done than others. But it's also like, I don't need to listen to any more of it. And that's the trick, right? Being the person who writes about this stuff and wants to be aware and wants to honor the full complexity of what's out there. There are some things that I think that don't work for me, but that may work for somebody else. One of the things I was talking a lot to people recently about is breaking. I have come to a theory that either you break in an actual play, or your audience is going to break for you. So if you, so I, so we can think about this in terms of um, some of the most powerful moments in Worlds Beyond Numbers, since your audience will be familiar with the great Taylor Moore, there, there are moments where a gasp or a scream or Lou Wilson going, what the fuck is up with this, mm -hmm. Brennan, um, that are right after a dramatic moment, right? And it, lets the balloon lose air pressure before it blows up. Listening with an audience, which I've been doing recently for the first time to actual plays, makes me realize like in the absence of that, if you don't diffuse the tension, someone's going to start laughing, especially if you have to do something like you know, talk about a mechanics change or something like that in the middle of a dramatic soliloquy or whatever. Um, and I hadn't really thought about that before. And I don't know whether that's a question of my taste and me being an old fuddy-duddy and not, and as an 18th centuryist, highly allergic to enthusiasm, right? And, and <laughs> wanting a little bit of that mitigation or whether that's a universal truth. And that's the danger of a critic, right? Is like, you cannot say that your truth is universal. So I'm, it's something I'm hoping to talk to more people about because, you know, if I'm right and it is close to a universal or it's a majority of listeners and, and viewers, then I can tell creators, hey, you might be shooting yourself in the foot. But if I, if it's just me and Generation Z feels very differently about, you know, big feelings, then uh, I'll just shut up and sit over here and uh, and learn something. It feels like a good insight. I feel like, I don't know, I feel like totally subjectively from spending a lot of time on TikTok, I feel like Gen Z is of that audience that appreciates when people don't take themselves too seriously. And it feels like cutting out your breaks and not allowing your breaks can come across maybe 
as you're taking yourself too seriously if you're not willing to put in that like what the fuck Brennan moment. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't mean to like harp on Dungeons and Drag Queens, but I've been talking so much to people before that that screener landed in my inbox to my giddy excitement about the ways in which this is an inherently camp form and whether that's true as well as, you know, how, what relationship actual play has to porn, which is, of course is the old canard, right? Because it's not like real playing. No, it's not like playing your game at home. I'm sorry, but it, uh, I want to put the porn, uh, metaphor to the side a minute because it, <laughs> it, it, it it has taken hours of my life away and conversations with really smart people um but the the idea of you know something adjacent to camp and what awareness you know camp is about being unaware and so why i push back against the idea of this is inherently camp is because in most of the most popular forms we get some kind of wink we get some kind of awareness that what that it's kind of silly to play a game, right? It's, and it's fun. And that's part of the, and the pleasure is this kind of sympathetic pleasure of we're, we're playing this game together. And isn't it fun? Mm -hmm. um, even when it's dark or scary or that kind of thing. Uh, now what that means for horror seems like the second most popular genre. You don't want to break tension. How do you not break tension or how do you break it in like micro fissures so that you don't lose momentum I think there's some interesting examples of that. There's, there's a thing that I think about a lot when I'm editing something or when I'm kind of coming into any new show. And it's that for every audience, there is some kind of activation energy. There is a hump you have to get over before you're like in it. And even as a, like a person who watches a lot of actual play, I'll, every new season of Dimension 20 I come into, the first 20 minutes are honestly hard for me to get through because like you have to like accept a new world and it's just tough. And coming into a new show that you've never, that you don't already have the trust with that, like, I know it's going to be a good show. It's Dimension 20. Like, the worst Dimension 20 series is still going to be a very good time. But coming into something as an audience member that I've never experienced before, I don't know any of the players, I don't know any of the people, I don't have a trust built with them yet that this is going to be worth my time. Getting over that activation hump is really difficult. And I, I try to spend a lot of time thinking about it every time I edit like the first episodes of one of our podcasts of like, all right, how do we get into it? How do we like prove very quickly that this is worth listening to, that this is going to be a fun ride? Have you found that there are any shows that are doing this, that like, because if you're listening to only the first 20 or 30 minutes of everything you get sent, what, what it, have you found any commonalities of the shows that you're like, oh, wait a minute, I'll listen to 15, 20 minutes more. Oh, Planet Arcana, I'll listen to a whole episode. Is, is there something that people are doing or maybe probably better to say not doing that you think has led to a greater success for you personally as a listener. Yeah, no, this is the, these are, this is officially Dr. Friedman's very personal uh, eccentric <laughs> uh, opinion time. The first example that came to my head was Dungeons and Daddies. That's the mm. smartest opening of any actual play um, because it's always different. They're doing a recap by doing a parody of something else. Remarkably clever way of bringing you in. And then they do the thing that a lot of a lot of shows do thereafter, right? Which is a little, you know, kind of instrumental Dungeons and Daddies, not a BDSM podcast, sometimes a BDSM podcast and a brief like here's here's the voices you're about to hear and then the like stupid table talk. I think the the thing that's most irritating to me is when we start with the stupid table talk and there's there's no clear sense that 
that was a choice versus this is when we press the record button. Because for me, what I'm looking for at this point in the game, so to speak, is signifiers that you care about me, right? And that is not about plot fan service. That is not about it, it, but it is about, did you think about an audience? Even if you got into a state of flow when you were playing, even if you're immersed, but when you put this thing together and put it on a podcatcher or you uploaded it to YouTube or turned on OBS to do this live, did at any point it occur to you that there are people who are going to be watching or listening to this? And did you make choices from that kind of perspective? I may not agree with them. I may not think that they're great, but did you think about them? One extreme of that, right, is Zach Eubank on Kolok, who's like, my players don't like playing, <laughs> or sometimes they don't like playing, um, because I am thinking not- by about nothing but the audience, right, when he is when he is kind of uh, engineering the experiences that he is doing there. And that's, I mean, I don't know that we all need to be that. Um, in fact, I, I think probably only Zach. Zach can stay on that end. God bless. But the other end you fall off the horse on the other side and you know i i get a lot of people and this is very much critical role posturing it's not what critical role is doing but it is critical role posturing which is well we're or we're we're legit and we're playing a game with our friends and that's what makes it real and cool and 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 if you want to watch that's cool and if you don't want to watch that's fine too. It's like, okay, so why did you record this? Why did you put this? You know, what 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 is the gain of that the, that an audience presence is for you? Um, and I don't have a good answer. I, I haven't gotten a good answer from that because uh, that's not a question that goes over well with someone who's like, no, I'm <laughs> I'm I'm doing this real. It is weirdly the anti-critical role critical role inspired answer to what people are doing. So yeah, so I don't I don't necessarily expect that it's going to be this lush sonic experience although if that happens then you shoot right up to the top of my charts. <laughs> but am I seeing this sense that the creators have have taken some time to think about choices with what they have, right? It doesn't have to be fancy, but it has to be intentional. You know, maybe you're not going to hit that mark, but maybe you will the next time. That's why I call it the ambitious middle is because they're, they may not hit the mark with everything they want to do, but there's a, there's a goal there that is beyond the, we're just friends uh, at a table. It's, I think it's, I think this is something you specifically called out on Twitter, but I also really appreciated it listening to it. It was Erica Ishii in one of the recent World Beyond Number talkback episodes they were talking about a specific moment and taylor moore you know gassing up his his team was like said something to the effect of lesser players wouldn't have made this choice and erica came in with this really i think good thing to lay out it's like not lesser players but not players who are also performers and thinking from a performer mindset and i think that's a that's the part of the distinction you're talking about is like oh, I'm not just playing, I am creating entertainment, I am performing, you know, I am a performer for somebody else's pleasure. And I think, and I really appreciated that she called it out for this, what could be perceived as like situation where it's like, oh, we're just playing a game 
you know, Worlds Beyond Number has that sort of perspective of we're going to play this game for many years and we're going to see where it takes us. But like, I appreciated that Erica also was like, but we're also performers and sometimes we make choices specifically from the performance perspective. Yeah. I mean, what's been really interesting and really fruitful in getting to talk to people in this space, both behind the camera, so to speak, or behind the microphone, so to speak, and, and those who are performing is this kind of sense that what we're talking about here is it is simultaneously absolutely true that this is an improv improvisational form where people get into a flow state and they make choices spontaneously and organically. And they do that because they have decades of training in how to know at the level of their subconscious, a story beat they could hit, a how to internalize their character drive so that when they step on stage, when they're telling other people's stories, they know how to organically deliver the most inorganic material, which is, you know, script scripted words. So when you get the chance to kind of perform in this sort of way, there's all kinds of muscle and mental memory in place. And I think that's one of the things that's really hard for people to communicate because it feels like that's saying that this is an artificial form. And that's, no, these things can be true at the same time. People can be highly trained performers, which is why they can improvise. I think about it in the same way that I can teach without a script, without writing down a lecture every, because I've been doing it for half my life. But yeah, I think that's one of the big things that is that we don't give real kind of credit to is like the reason why this is a, a form that has been dominated by millennials is because millennials, elder millennials have been doing this for an entire careers and have a, a training base to draw from. For some, it's traditional acting. Um, from some, it's other forms of performance uh, or improv or what have you. Uh, and some, it is from writing. I mean, like, you know, or from comedy or that sort of thing. Um, however you get it, if you got it, if you got it honed, then you can do it. And then, of course, a lot of the people, you know, if you're talking about somebody like Matt or Bria or Brennan, you're also talking about people who have played in this specific form for more than half their lives, right? And I and there are talented young folks who can do that as well. And I am totally shamelessly going to sing the praises of my former student, London Carlisle, who does a lot of work. He's doing D&D &D in a castle, which is so weird. Um, oh, mostly fun. he does Hell Chaosium yeah. stuff. Um, but he's... I can say because I watched him get trained, he is an extraordinarily well-trained traditional BFA in performance and a working stage actor until the pandemic meant that, you know, all the New York stages closed for a hot minute. So, yeah. So, I mean, you don't have to be 40 years old to be ready to do this, but you do have to have certain kinds of training that means that you've got some good in instincts that have been overlaid. And yeah, we don't talk about that because it it's kayfabe. It's revealing the fact that not everybody's table is going to look like this. We kind of say that, but we don't. Right. Breaks the illusion a little bit. Yeah. Which is weird because this is like this is a this is a performance mode that's all about the fact that we are sh collectively understanding that this is an illusion that we are creating together. And uh, yeah, we need to talk more, way more about kayfabe uh, in this uh, in this form. I don't, 
I don't know what kayfabe is. It's the it's the meta narrative uh, in professional wrestling, right? It's oh, this okay. is a real fight for real, and these are real beef. So yeah, the the, the all of that uh, is the kayfabe. Um, Danielle Radford would be the most expert person to talk about this, but yeah, there's definitely some awareness that that's part of the mix as well for folks who are fans of professional wrestling. It's funny how many people in the tabletop space, I see our fans of professional wrestling. There's a pretty decent crossover there. Yep. We're all doing the same thing. It's all professional wrestling. It's all sports. It's all soap operas. Everything, it, there's nothing new under the sun. Everything is the same thing. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, we understand super long form kind of narratives through soap opera. We understand kind of these weird levels of performance through things like uh, uh, like professional wrestling. And uh, we understand the thrill of rolling dice and having a skill met with success from professional sports. Oh, I love it. <laughs> We've been talking a lot. And if people don't think you're an expert at this point in this space, then I don't know what's wrong with them. But I'd love to just like get a little bit of insight into your journey to this point. And specifically, we uh, are asking this consistent question across guests called uh, Nat Ones Are Still Fun and sharing a failure from that journey and what you learned from it. The one that's sticking out because yesterday was my anniversary of uh, my first byline for Polygon. Ah, congratulations. That byline could have been like six, seven months earlier if I had checked the spam folder in my email. <laughs> and and I, and I it's t so because Charlie reached out and was like, hey, you, you're interested in Critical Role. Would you want to write about Critical Role? Apparently that, that email never got through. The Twitter DM got through seven months later. Um, but, and I think that's tied to another thing that is actually still kind of like, you know, a, a negative stat in my block, um, which is I find it really hard to ask and to pitch. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and that has been something that I've had to kind of strengthen across this, right? Like I'm used to like submitting an application, um, right? Like for my job or for an article or that kind of thing. But, but coming into the space and wanting to talk to people publicly and wanting to write for the public and all of those sorts of things meant that I had to get accustomed to, you know, throwing pitches out into the world kind of in all, in all kinds of places. And also to ask people to do things for me, um, which is even harder. I finally like got over it and ripped off the bandage. And I remember, and the biggest moment of that was that has been the most fruitful was when I emailed Gabe Hicks and was like, Hey, would you be willing to do this thing at winter tour in Delaware? And he, uh, he was like, absolutely. And it has led to this like incredibly productive and, and fruitful kind of set of collaborations ever since. But yeah, if I, but it, it took the long road of getting over, like waiting to be approached. Um, and sometimes you miss those emails, uh, which means <laughs> you have to pitch. <laughs> So check your spam folder. Check your spam folder. And don't be afraid to ask. And I would say, like, they always say shoot your shot. But, like, shoot your shot in a way where you're, A, respectful to people and, B, like, you know, ready for what comes next. Just just my little take on, on pitching as well is always, like, present it to someone in a way that makes sense for them. So, like, I'm not just asking you to do a thing. I'm being like, here's what I can offer you if you can do this thing for me. Make it an equal exchange of ideas and of time and of resources. As best you can. People think of networking as kind of predatory. What networking should be in its best form is 
you coming open-handed and open-hearted with, these are the things that I can provide. And so the other thing that was really hard for me as part of this is realizing that, oh, right, the Dr. Friedman thing actually means something. And, and it has a kind of benefit and has, and people also really want to feel like their work is being honored and heard. And I didn't realize that, you know, you can be surrounded by hundreds of thousands of fans and never get to talk about the things that actually matter to you um, or feel like your work is actually being thoughtfully engaged with. And so realizing that that was a value add that I was providing was like the aha moment to the, oh, now I can ask. Now I feel like I can reach out to people and not feel like I'm just being a leech, but I'm providing some kind of value. Love that. And then the the last of, of our, our our pre-written, pre-canned, uh, we're, we're asking every time questions is, uh, yeah, yeah, my, 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 my question here for all of our guests. And this is the question we, this is the question we call. This is just the question. The que- Okay, that was a long preamble. And I'm going to keep all of it in as punishment for having said it. <laughs> It's uh, the overthinking episode, so... Yeah, you know, it's like, it's fine. Everything's fine. Okay, you guys ready? All right. Do you have a question, Brian, you wanted to ask? Yeah, I do have a question I want to ask, Elliot. Thank you so much for asking. Uh, Emily, what are you bringing to the table today? So what is a person, a game, a show, a resource, something with under the broad brass umbrella of tabletop that you want people to know about? Oh, man. Uh, so I'm bringing to the table series seeker seriesseeker.com we've been talking a lot today about how discoverability is garbage in the space um, and that this is a pain point for both audiences and for creators and series seeker is trying to do something about that um, they are also people who provide metadata for my research so if you are a creator you can submit your series and they will ask you all kinds of extremely granular questions about what's your format how long is your average episode what's your cast like what's the vibe what system are you playing are you audio are you video are you both how's your audio quality um you know um how often do you update? Is this over yet? Um, you know, all these kinds of really specific questions, which are also questions that then you can use in Series Seeker to find your next actual play that you are excited about. And so right now they have over 400 podcasts and streams. That is still a really small number of uh, the total ecosystem. So every, so, Anytime you give me a chance to kind of hype something, that's that's going to be it because I really believe that like we're in a time when platforms are funky and we can't all get on TikTok. These kinds of movements are the ways in which we can start to kind of get a better sense of what's out there and make it available to people who might be interested in exploring this form in different kinds of ways. So that's seriesseeker.com. I'll be heading over there immediately after this interview because <laughs> yeah. I was unaware of this thing. Uh, and it sounds fabulous. Thank you, Dr. Emily Friedman, for coming to the table. Uh, you want to tell the people where they can find you? You can find me at F-R-I-E-D-E. You can find me using that handle most places except for Instagram and YouTube where I am Critical Prof. 
and I own the means of production and will always be available at ecfriedman, that's friedman.com, where you can sign up for a mailing list and get information about upcoming surveys and interviews that I'm doing with members of the tabletop community. And I hope to see some folks at Big Bad Con, which is where I will be in September. And if you want more gaming content from us, you can check out the 20-sided newsletter and the many-sided media discord if you want to talk about all of My First Dungeon, Talk of the Table, and anything else we make games-related. Those are both linked in our show notes below. Rate, review, and follow wherever you find your podcast. And that is what the table is talking about. Bye, everybody. If you're hearing this, that means you have listened to every last second of this episode, and that probably makes you a fan of this show. Well, if you're a fan and you like what we're doing and want to help others find it as well, then consider leaving us a five-star review over on Spotify or on Apple Podcasts. Getting more ratings really does help more people find the show, and reading your nice words about the things that we put out into the world makes us feel all warm and good inside, and we want more of those good, good feels. So head on over to your podcast player of choice and leave us a five-star review. Thanks.